It may be, though, that as you have been sitting there, that you um, take issue not so much with the images that have gone along with this talk, um, of which more in a moment, um, but some of the words that I've chosen in this title, or indeed the combination of words. Um, you might have an issue with power. Michel Foucault, for example, has taught us that power is a mutable concept. You might also have an issue with this idea of the communication of power and the assumptions that lie therein, the assumption that Henry III did indeed communicate his power and that perhaps he was adept at doing so. There could be good reasons for doubting all of this. Um, a recent biography of Henry III by an American author, Darren Brown, has the subtitle, The Great King England Never Knew It Had. Um, and in an article that appeared about this book in BBC History magazine in December of 2017, so at the end of last year, the magazine article emphasised the king's underrated reputation. How well, then, could Henry III have communicated his power if so few of us today know who he was? And as we've just heard, the problem of identifying Henry III for a contemporary audience was um, apparent in the preparation for this um, lecture, which initially um, was advertised as follows. Um, I don't think there's um, any issues with the um, text. Um, but the individual you see here is indeed a, uh, a king, um, and indeed a King Henry, and a King Henry III, um, but of France and of the um, 16th um, century. Um, I won't emphasise this um, point, though, to incur the wrath of my hosts. Um, but to be clear, um, we are talking about this individual um, this evening. Um, this is King Henry III, or Henry of Winchester, as he was known before he became um, king, the eldest son of King John and England's fifth longest reigning monarch between 1216 and 1272. The problem, though, I suppose, of identifying King Henry and determining his worth is not a new one. In the 14th century, um, Dante, writing his um, Divine Comedy at the beginning of the um, 14th century, um, consigned Henry um, to sit in eternal solitude outside the gates of purgatory. And so it is that Henry III has long been remembered, if indeed he is remembered at all, as one of England's witless kings, rather like Richard II or Charles I. Conventional historical narratives um, suggest that Henry had big ideas, but that he lacked the cash, the consensus, and political nous to see them realised. And like King Richard and King Charles, Henry was certainly an aesthete. He initiated the lavish reconstruction of Westminster Abbey to make it a suitable place of worship for his patron saint, Edward the Confessor. He remodelled Winchester Great Hall, of which the um, magnificent um, building still remains today. Henry's almsgiving, which included Maundy distributions of shoes, his commission of costly garments and jewellery, 
not to mention his detailed specifications for decorative schemes in royal residences and his recorded impatience when they took far too long to realize, testifies, I think, to his passion, his interest in art and ceremony. But historians frequently suggest that Henry III built big and spent prodigiously because he lacked effective political authority. The role of royal dress, architecture, and ceremony during his reign then was to provide a facade. It was an impressive veil to consider, uh, to conceal rather, a character that was bereft of the qualities um, that would enable Henry to be a strong and effective medieval ruler. Henry III's communication of power then was smoke and mirrors. The most damning verdict of Henry III in this regard is that of Professor Nicholas Vincent, who, in commenting on the relic of Christ's blood that was gifted to Henry III in 1247 by the Patriarch of Jerusalem, this was an inducement to persuade Henry to take the cross and go on crusade. He took the gift but didn't go on crusade. Um, Anyway, Vincent asserts the um, following... The general indifference to Westminster, this is Westminster Abbey, the general indifference to Westminster, to the shrine of Edward, and to such relics as the Holy Blood, reflects a more deep-rooted indifference towards the king himself, an indifference that bordered upon contempt. As crusader, financier, administrator, and as would-be reconqueror of France, Henry fared just as dismally as he did as a patron of relics. The failure of the holy blood is to this extent symptomatic of the far wider failure of King Henry III. Well, Vincent makes his point forcefully, um, but this argument is not new. Since Bishop Stubbs, who was writing during the 19th century, scores of historians have taken uh, an almost perverse delight in demonstrating the eloquence of their diction to berate Henry III's deeds. This makes for a stimulating talk or, or, or read. But when the so-called experts perpetuate ready-made characterizations of kings... I think we are in danger of misunderstanding the past. So in what follows, I want to argue that Henry III used art consistently and deliberately throughout his reign. And I want to stress that if we are to understand the accomplishments and the crises of one of the longest reigns and indeed most tumultuous reigns of our history, a reign that saw the establishment of Magna Carta as the benchmark of good governance. If we want to remember and to understand Henry III more fully, we need to acknowledge the centrality of art and ceremony in his reign, for this was central to the king's communication of power, even if his efforts were not always successful. And I want to make my argument by thinking about a belt, a building, and a battle. So we're going to start with the um, belt, which you can see before you. This was discovered in the early 1940s in the monastery of Santa Maria de las Halgas in Burgos, so in northern Spain. It was discovered in the tomb of Fernando de la Cerda, the son and heir of Alfonso X of Castile. 
And here you can see a photograph um, just after the um, coffin of the Infanta has been opened. You can see the Infanta's right hand is over the um, hilt of a sword. And next to that, you can see the um, sword belt. The belt is made of a tablet woven braid decorated with minute blue and glass beads. It is lined with a light green silk that is brocaded with gold. Two silver gilt plates, and you can see one of them at the end here, are attached to the ends of the strap, one of which serves as a buckle. Okay, so we have the buckle at the um, top. The plates, as you see them here, are decorated with pearls and sapphires, and each contains four three-sided shields painted with heraldic devices. The belt strap, which you see here, is divided into 20 equal sections, which are decorated with alternating um, designs. Ten of the panels feature intricate geometric patterns set within a diamond-shaped frame. The corners of these panels are filled with sphosticas and discs. No two panels are identical, but the colour scheme of each is blue and white. Now, this is um, probably looking rather brown to you. Um, a lot of the blue and white glass beads have since come off, but it would have been um, blue and white when first um, made. The ten remaining panels, as you can see, are again filled with three-sided heraldic shields. Some of these shields copied from the silver gilt plates which we saw a moment ago. These panels are also depicted in blue and white. In total, then, the belt features 12 different coats of arms. And historians have long recognised, they've long understood, that if we want to understand, to comprehend what this belt means and where it's come from, we need to be able to identify the individuals whose arms are here represented. And as you can possibly imagine, historians have not easily reached consensus. Since this belt was discovered over 70 years ago, different arguments have been put forward to suggest that the belt originated in England, in France, in Spain, and in Germany. Um, in an article that I wrote about the belt, I suggested that it was indeed English and that it had been commissioned by King Henry III. The belt's journey from England to Spain was circuitous. In 1254, Henry gifted the belt to the Count of Champagne and King of Navarre, Tybalt II, during his first diplomatic visit to France um, in that year. In 1269, Tybalt then re-gifted the belt to Fernando de la Cerda at his wedding. The belt's burial with the Castilian Infanta provides, I think, important evidence of the close familial and political relationships that linked the ruling dynasties of northwestern Europe during the 13th century. Commissioned as a gift and richly decorated, I suggested that the belt should be seen as an example of the aesthetic accomplishment of Henry III, his use of propaganda and his political aspirations. And just returning to the um, buckle here, you can see um, the various arms of the people that Henry is associating himself with. So here we have the Angevin lions or leopards, that's the arms of England. 
Henry is next to his brother-in-law, the saintly Louis IX of France. We then have the line rampant of Richard, Earl of Cornwall, Richard, Henry III's brother, um, and later the Rex Romanorum, the King of the Romans. Um, and what, I suppose, demonstrates some of the, complexity of, uh, the complexities of this belt is that Tybalt is Count of Champagne, is also the King of Navarre, but with a different set of um, arms uh, when he's um, featured on the um, buckle plate itself. So that gives you some indication of the complexities and the diff um, difficulties that historians have had in trying to um, identify and place this belt in time and place. Now, you may have caught on um, there to another word that I used, um, and that was propaganda. Um, propaganda is clearly not a medieval term, but I do think it is appropriate in this context if we follow the definition that is favoured by the French historian, French medievalist Martin Aurel, and he describes propaganda as follows. It is the broadcasting of a political message out from the royal court and its reception by the periphery, where the aristocracy still had an ability to make up its own mind, an ability the king wanted to influence. It recognised that there was public opinion in the complacence of the aristocracy, which it was necessary to convince about the good sense of the actions of the king and his officers. Propaganda assumes a sharp consciousness of the role of communication amongst the governing classes who were intelligently furthering the spread of ideas when they funded professional thinkers, writers, and performers. It also implies an infrastructure, however primitive. Well, I think Fernando's belt certainly sought to convince people about the good sense of the actions of the king. And it did this by emphasising the convivial relations that existed within the English court and between Henry III and his fellow European rulers. The fact that there are only ten shields on the belt strap, some of which are replicated here on the silver gilt plates, implies, I think, deliberate selection. The arms of these shields belong to a diverse group of individuals, who are not comparable in terms of their office, their age, or their income. There are conspicuous absences and odd inclusions. In total, three kings, six earls, two barons. This again, I think, implies a deliberate selection of people whom Henry III has chosen to include. Now, due to the limits of time and indeed your patience on a Thursday evening, I'm not going to offer you a prosperographical overview of all of the people whose arms appear on this belt. But I do think it is important in this context to say that all of the men, indeed they, they are all men, um, whose arms appear on the belt um, can be described as English in the sense that they can trace their families back to the Norman conquest of 1066. On the strap, then, we have, if you like, a sort of English image. On the um, silver gilt plates, the arms of England, as you see here, appear alongside those of France and Navarre. So I think the way we need to see this is that on the strap, Henry is King of England, 
ruling in conjunction among his native barons. On the silver gilt plate, he stands among European princes, alongside, as I've said, the saintly Louis IX and Tybalt II of Navarre. The theme of Englishness um, that runs, I think, across the belt strap was hardly coincidental. The emphasis on individuals who were de regno, de regno angle natos, born of the Kingdom of England, coincides, I think, with Henry III's efforts to almost rebrand the monarchy after the death of his father, King John, and the virtual loss of the dynasty's cross-channel kingdom. And usually, for this time, Henry rejected French names for his eldest male children, and he named them after English saints, Edward and Edmund, and at the time I think that would have been um, very striking, and these were canonised English kings. He adopted the last true English monarch before the conquest, Edward the Confessor, as his sa uh, patron saint, of whom more in a moment. But during the 1250s, as I've indicated, when I think the belt was commissioned, an Anglo-centric focus was politique in other respects. The English court was becoming increasingly concerned, and indeed vocal, about Henry III's distribution to his Lusignan half-brothers. And it is striking, I think, that these men, these individuals who were so close to the king in his councils, are not included anywhere on the belt. The promotion of court allegiances and the image of a king working in concert with his political community um, that we see here um, was not new, as indeed political ideas even in the medieval period really are. Um, and Henry had explored this image of sort of co-fraternity and rule, if you like, in art before. In 1243, he commissioned a mural for the Great Hall of Dublin Castle. Um, the painting no longer survives, but we do have, albeit brief, but we do have a, a written description of it. And it apparently depicted the king and the queen among their baronage. So this idea of political community was important to Henry III. And indeed, it was revived after this belt was made between 1259 and 1265, when 16 heraldic shields were installed either side of the choir in Westminster Abbey. Um, and these, these are not recent photographs, but these um, shields um, still survive um, today. Some of them have been sort of horribly mutilated. They've been sort of cut away as sort of 18th and 19th century sort of horrid sort of um, tomb decorations have been sort of embedded into the walls. So they've sort of been um, cut apart, but these two survive. And you see here um, on your right the, um, is that right? No, you're left. Um, the um, forked tail of the shield of Simon de Montfort, Henry III's brother-in-law um, and rival, as we'll hear in a moment. And then the chevrons on the other side. This is Richard de Clare, the Earl of Gloucester and um, Hartford. And again, as we see on the um, belt strip, these um, arms depict Henry in concert, ruling with his native aristocracy, but also um, we have... Um, is part of the shield sequence, the arms of France and of Germany as or the empire as well. So on the belt then, I think we see a confident assertion of Henry III's place in England and beyond. It's a communication of a terrestrial, a secular um, power. 
The next example I want to think about is going to take us into the realm of um, religious authority. And in some way, these um, shields provide a nice um, segue for that, um, because the building that I want to talk about is indeed Westminster Abbey, where these shields, as I say, are located. So in moving from a belt now to a building, I want to start by thinking about the north transept of Westminster Abbey. And indeed, if you were to visit the Abbey today, this is how you would, um, how you would enter. Um, and as you may know, Henry III initiates the reconstruction of Westminster Abbey in 1245, starting from the east end, sections of the confessor's 11th century church are pulled down, and then taller and wider sections of Henry's church are put in their place. What we're looking at, I suppose, is a medieval, is a 13th century facade, um, although more specifically, this is a restoration that was um, conducted by Nicholas Hawksmoor, of course, a student of Sir Christopher Wren. Hawksmoor was responsible also for the, the Western End and Towers, which are possibly um, more um, indelibly sort of ingrained in your mind if you're thinking of the Abbey um, today. So the facade is slightly different, but in terms of the scale, in terms of the basic proportions, we are looking at something that Henry III would have understood, and if you were visiting the Abbey in his day, you too would um, have recognised. So as you process through the um, doors in the um, north transept... Your eyes, I think, would have been taken across um, the um, altar where we had the tomb of Edward the Confessor and would have looked up into the opposite, into the south transept, where you would have seen this extraordinarily beautiful rose window. And as you were gazing up at the rose window, you would have noticed just between the rose window and the triforium a group of figures at the end, we have two sensing angels, but in the middle, we have possibly something a little bit more curious. On the, um, let me get this right this time, on your left, we have a um, decapitated um, figure. Um, this was an act of um, destruction that was perpetrated during the reign of King Henry VIII. The body of this forlorn figure is turned to another on his right, whose arm is outstretched, his right arm outstretched towards him. This figure with the outstretched arm is Edward the Confessor, and he is handing his ring to John the Evangelist. This is the beheaded individual, disguised as a pauper. This scene, which was depicted in paint and stone in many royal residences during Henry III's reign, is a central story in the hagiography of Edward the Confessor. And the story goes something like this. One day after leaving church, King Edward the Confessor was approached by a pauper asking for alms. The king, uh, a proto-Wenceslas lass, um, had no um, small change to give. Um, but as a good Christian ruler, he could not let one of his subjects in need depart with nothing. So he removed his fingering and offered it to the pauper. 
He, a debonair monarch, thought no more of his charity, but this deed was to have an awesome consequence. Many years later, two English pilgrims were traveling in the Holy Lands, walking alone one evening, and I've never been quite sure why this has to be the evening. I suppose it just makes the, the telling of this slightly more dramatic. Um, but walking alone um, one evening, these two um, men were approached by an elderly man in a hooded cloak. The man asked these travellers if they were from England. Yes, they replied. He asked if their king was Edward. Yes, they replied. Satisfied with their monosyllabic responses, the man instructed the um, pilgrims to return immediately to their king and to instruct him that he was about to die. He explained that several years earlier, King Edward the Confessor had given him his ring, thinking him to be but a humble peasant. But the king had been wrong. The man threw back his hood, and I now imagine sort of light and sort of sound effects just to make it even more um, dramatic as this is happening. But he throws back his hood and reveals that he is, of course, St. John the Evangelist. And St. John, as I said, instructs the pilgrims to travel home immediately to inform the king that he's about to die. But the king should not fear. Because of his earlier generosity, at the moment of death, St. John the Evangelist will be there in person to escort the king's soul to heaven. The men were to return to England with the king's ring as a symbol of the saint's sincerity. So stirring stuff. In the 13th century, Henry III, and later, of course, Richard II, was drawn to this episode because it reminded him and other onlookers of his own piety and benevolence. It also implied that his kingship was um, sanctioned by heavenly heavyweights in the same way that Edward the Confessors had been. But as keen as Henry was evidently to demonstrate his Christian credentials, this was not the only point that he wanted to impress upon visitors as they entered his church. And as people walk into the abbey today, um, as indeed then, they pass under a stone arch. And at the apex of this arch, there is the bust, this bust, of a podgy-faced boy. The figure is not specifically identified, and, and we never indeed have been able to identify who it is. But most historians agree um, that this is probably a representation of the Lord Edward, Henry III's son and successor. And indeed, he was um, Henry III's successor as Edward I. So as soon as visitors enter Westminster Abbey we see that there is a demonstration of both Henry's terrestrial authority, but also how his authority is sanctioned by the heavens. So that you have this sort of wonderfully um, compelling sort of intermingling of the secular and sacred. And this sophisticated scheme was elaborated further in the Abbey's chapter house, a building upon which Henry lavished much attention. The tone of the room, the chapter house that you see here, was set by the tiled floor, um, which survives intact today, and of which the Latin inscription was as follows. Ut rosa flos floorum, sic est domus ista domorum. 
As the rose is the flower of flowers, so is this the house of houses. The tiled floor, as you see, incorporates a diverse mixture of dynastic and religious iconography. The Angevin lions, um, which you can see here, for example, appear 62 times across the floor. Along uh, next to it, you can see stylized impressions of the rose window that we've just been looking at. You also have depictions, again, of Edward the Confessor giving his ring to John the Baptist. It's also documented that Henry III had a golden lectern made specifically for this room. It's well documented that he liked to make speeches and clearly thought this was a, a suitable place to do it. Um, and if you go into Westminster um, Abbey's chapter house, you can just about sort of see um, what looked like steps, but these would have been the benches where the barons would have sat when they were in colloquium or, or a sort of proto-parliament with their um, monarch. So we have to imagine the baron sat around, the king speaking from his golden lectern. And specifically one occasion when Henry III wanted to try to persuade his barons of an initiative um, to put his second son, Edmund, on the throne of Sicily. And if the room, the tiled floor, the golden lectern wasn't enough, Henry had made, commissioned, a set of Sicilian coronation robes that his son would wear and be paraded in front of the barons as an inducement to... Um, force them to, um, or I suppose guilt them, into giving up money for the venture. The preparations then, the propaganda, to use that word again, were carefully considered. Alas, the cash was not forthcoming. Between 1239 and 1266, all of King Henry III's requests for taxation were denied. <laughs> Today, we have to look, I think, quite hard for some of the architectural features that I have been describing. Um, so many of um, these details are hidden or partially destroyed, as I alluded to with the shields. But in the 13th century, they would have been much clearer. The abbey would have been um, brightly painted and its intricately carved interior, illuminated by candlelit, um, candlelight, would have made them very, very prominent. And I think that's a, an important contrast just to um, consider before moving on to my final example. All of this carving that you see in the um, transepts, um, known as diaper work, all of this is done in situ. Um, and although Westminster Abbey, if you were to compare it to the great cathedral churches of France that are being constructed um, during the um, reign of Louis IX, um, those churches in France are much larger than Westminster Abbey, but by contrast, their interior is often quite plain. So if you'd been, I suppose, to visit in the 13th century those churches in, in France, in Paris, and then come to Westminster Abbey, you really would, I think, have been um, sort of overawed by the richness of this interior. And that, of course, was the point. It's making a point about Henry III's terrestrial authority. It's making a point about his... Um, ecclesiastical um, authority and how his rule is blessed by heaven and by Edward the Confessor in particular. But I want for my third and final example to um, move from the um, periphery of the kingdom of heaven and very much come back down to earth um, and think about blood. Um, and think about my third example, which is the battle. 
Um, in actual fact, it actually isn't a battle, it's a siege, but battle works better in my alliterative scheme rather than siege. So we're going to talk about a siege. Um, it is the siege of Kenilworth Castle, um, which was the longest siege in English history, lasting for 172 days in 1266. To contextualise this, though, I want to start a little bit before 1266. I want to start nine months before. Um, on the 4th of August 1265, when Henry III wins a magnificent victory over the forces of his um, brother-in-law, um, the Earl of Leicester, whom I've mentioned previously. This victory, the Battle of Evesham, um, effectively ended a civil war that had raged in England since 1263, which had been effectively sparked by the belief that Henry III was not ruling in accordance with Magna Carta. Simon de Montfort emerges as the leader of, if you like, the sort of breakaway um, faction. But on the 4th of August 1265, the rebel leader is killed and um, Henry is able to reassert his authority. The problem, though, is that although Henry wanted to assert his authority and ostensibly can do so, a lot of dissidents remained. They were very fearful of rumours that Henry wanted revenge. They were very fearful and scared about actions that Henry had begun to take, which was to essentially confiscate their lands. And so for these um, individuals who become collectively known as the disinherited, they flee to Kenilworth. Kenilworth had been um, Montfort's um, stronghold. And it makes perfect sense, in a sense, to flee to um, Kenilworth, because in the 13th century, this would have been, if you like, a, a super fortress. Um, by this stage, you do not have, um, or the English kings do not have the um, financial resources to maintain a large network of castles. So instead, they um, are spending their money, they're investing um, technologies into strategically placed castles around the kingdom. So Dover, for example, in the middle of England, we have Kenilworth. Um, this sketch from um, English Heritage gives an idea of what Kenilworth looked like um, during the period of Henry III's reign. And you can see the formidable walls. You can also note the 100-acre um, defensive mere um, that protects the castle and that was constructed by Henry III's father, um, King John. So it's good sense for these rebels, after the Battle of Evesham, to flee to Montfort's um, stronghold. And as I've said... It is a castle that is situated in the middle of the kingdom. And this is a phrase that's used by um, the St. Albans monk, William of Roshanga. And Roshanga goes on. He's writing in the 14th century, so he's writing after Henry III's reign. So I think his, his insights here are, are particularly important. He says that the garrison at Kenilworth needed to be brought to heel. They needed to um, surrender the castle if peace were once again to smile upon England. And I think this is a particularly apposite um, view. So when Henry III begins to assemble the royal forces at Kenilworth in the summer, uh, or late spring, early summer, of 1265, the royal divisions separate to surround the castle. We have accounts that enable us, I suppose, to imagine the roads and waterways around this um, building heaving with traffic 
um, delivering equipment to maintain the enormous siege effort that is about to start. Royal records mention the supply of 60,000 quarrels for crossbows, some 2,000 wooden hurdles measuring 8 by 7 feet and thicker variants measuring 10 by 8 feet were also dispatched to the castle. These hurdles, I think, were presumably defensive screens to protect the royal forces from um, projectiles hurled from the castle. Heavier siege equipment was also um, delivered by road and river. And these machines, these trebuchets and catapults, are erected around the castle. Once set up, they fired stone missiles day and night. The use of wooden siege towers, not surprisingly, is something that um, contemporary and near-contemporary chroniclers were particularly excited and interested um, in, and so they go into um, great um, detail in their descriptions of the siege. For example, one of the Lord Edward's towers, which is described as being of remarkable height and width, contained 200 crossbowmen. Through skill, so we're told, the royalists managed to, um, sorry, the um, attackers managed to, um, sorry, yes, it is royalists, uh, managed to attach the, um, car, um, the tower to the castle walls, but it was hit by a missile, um, rendering it out of action. The King's Siege Tower, which was called the Bear on account of its great size, um, fared a little better um, and met a similar fate. Barges from Chester to assail the castle by water were delivered by incredible labours, but were repulsed. Plans to undermine the castle walls through ditches and tunnels also failed. The variety of tactics that Henry III is um, using here may, on one level, be a damning indictment of the effectiveness of his war machine. Um, I think that would be slightly unfair. In a medieval warfare, the advantage is always with the um, defender, if we're thinking about siege warfare. Um, trying to take a castle of this size is incredibly difficult in terms of time and money. I think for us, though, the point is that... Henry's efforts, Henry's time and money that he's investing in the siege tell us that victory at Kenilworth was a prerequisite in his bid to restore royal authority. And just to give you um, some sense of the um, projectiles that are being hurled by the um, royal army and how, um, I suppose, times change, um, now used as garden decorations um, in the castle precincts, but when the um, mere was... Um, excavated, they found these stone um, projectiles. So it gives you an idea of what the um, castle garrison is um, up against. In part, I think, the um, King's show of force at Kenilworth was all about bravado. Henry wanted to demonstrate that his authority was not impaired following his 15-month captivity before the Battle of Evesham. After Sam de Montfort's death, his neck was skewered by a lance. Henry wanted to ensure that everyone in England knew that he was once again the legitimate and unchallenged ruler. And that's important. During the period of Henry III's captivity, people began to refer to Simon de Montfort as a quasi-king. So it's not enough that he's dead. Henry III wants people to know that. And this explains, I think, why, after the Battle of Evesham, Henry is escorted into the town to a trumpet salute. 
It also explains why Montfort's dismembered corpse was dispatched to various parts of the kingdom as a gruesome warning to lingering insurgents. I think this also explains why um, the royal household um, supplied Henry with a new suit of clothing to make him look every bit the commander-in-chief during the Kenilworth siege. Now, some of you will instantly be able to recognise that this is not um, from Henry III's reign. This is actually a Dupont that was made for the Black Prince um, and what um, his body was um, dressed in after his death. So this is 14th century, but it gives you the closest example um, that I can find of this garment that is made for Henry III. And again, this is something that is quite richly described in the household accounts of King Henry. So we're dealing here with a, a gambeson, which was a military tunic of quilted fabric. So in a sense, similar to what we see here. But unlike this, Henry III's garment had dags. Um, dags were pointed pieces of fabric that were sewn onto the hem or shoulders of a garment, almost invariably in a different um, colour. Um, the tunic was also finished um, with orphreys. This is gold-embroidered decoration around, again, the collar and cuffs. And it's quite curious, I think, that Henry III would have had a garment like this made for him at this time. The protection afforded by a gambeson was geared primarily to hand combat. It would have been of little direct use during a siege. Granted, the analyst of Dunstable Abbey refers to raids that were launched against the um, royal army encamped outside castle by the garrison um, within, and the fact that Henry III and the Lord Edward needed to arm themselves out of fear. Nonetheless, I think the physical description of this garment suggests it was worn chiefly for its aesthetic impact. And if we want to make a, a, a modern um, comparison, perhaps like Hitler, who wanted to exchange his grey military jacket with the brown party one, but refused until the war was won, so obviously that didn't happen. Um, Henry III um, possibly wanted to wear his military tunic to show his commitment to the siege. And that point isn't perhaps as flippant as it might appear. Um, Henry III had made a conscious possibly public decision to remain at Kenilworth until the siege was over. He did not even return to Westminster Abbey for the feast of his patron saint on the 13th of October, as was his custom. Indeed, I think, during the period of the siege, Henry III was probably more visible to his subjects and for a longer period of time than at any other point in his 56-year reign. So sensitive um, about his image, and as we heard when we're talking about Westminster Abbey, deeply pious, Henry began seemingly to have concerns about his strategy. He began, I think, to worry or just to recognise that his bellicosity was proving counterproductive in his efforts to induce the garrison to surrender. Midway through the siege, he therefore tried a different approach. If he could not induce his subjects to surrender through displays of uh, force, he seems to have thought, he would win them over with gestures of benevolence. And the royal household accounts show that Henry distributed much greater quantities of plate and jewellery um, during the period of the Kenilworth siege. 
not surprisingly, the scale of royal oblations had fallen during the king's captivity, but these increase after the Battle of Evesham and were now on a similar magnitude um, to what they had been before um, the Civil War and during Henry's personal rule between 1234 and 1258. A surviving arms roll also indicates that Henry um, at the um, siege is feeding 100 paupers daily um, which means that the king's customary levels of almsgiving were maintained. Throughout the siege, much of the food, the um, daily um, victuals for the royal household are being supplied by local sheriffs. So the cost of feeding the household is relatively small, varying from perhaps um, five to 15 shillings daily. But on the feast of the Assumption of the Virgin Mary, um, the 15th of August, Henry celebrates this occasion with a feast costing £50. Um, that might seem still quite paltry, but if we put that into its medieval context, if you were to be a knight and to have um, sufficient income to support the costs of knighthood, you would be on an income of around £15 to £20 a year. Okay, So if we maybe put that into a modern context, this is an income of... High five figures, maybe low six figures. Okay, so Henry's spending almost double that on one occasion during the siege. Um, so this is a this is a slap up notch, I suppose is my point. Um, and holding this feast before the walls of Kenilworth Castle mid siege, I think must have been an impressive sight. Um, and of course, I think this was the king's intention. And I think also there's an element of psychological warfare here, um, tormenting the starving and besieged garrison out, um, inside with the sight and smells of food and merriment outside. It is difficult, I think, to imagine the full impact of Henry's actions at Kenilworth, the incongruity of the king feeding 100 paupers daily whilst his siege engines hurled stone missiles continuously at the garrison within, I think must have been um, striking. What we can say is that Henry III's actions were not wholly successful. Instead of cowering before the royal army, the garrison crowed. The siege provides us with one of the more unusual acts of um, defiance to be recorded during Henry III's reign, and indeed possibly during the medieval period. During the siege, a local surgeon, um, Master Philip Porpies, um, a member of the castle garrison, stood atop the castle's red sandstone walls to excommunicate the royal army before him. His action was a direct rebuttal and copy of what papal legate Otto Buono de Fieschi, whom the king had summoned to Kenilworth, um, had done moments before when he excommunicated the rebels within the castle. In wearing a makeshift coat to pass his sentence of anathema, um, which ostensibly cast the royal army, the king and the legate from the Catholic Church, Philip Porpies was engaging in one of the earliest recorded acts of fancy dress costume to be worn as protest. He was also demonstrating, I think, in clamorous fashion, the inability of Henry III's actions to persuade the garrison to relent and to 
yield. Um, this um, illumination is not from the siege, but I couldn't let that little account pass without some form of dramatic um, illustration. So here you do see um, an um, act of um, excommunication taking place. You can imagine what Henry had to um, endure. I have alluded to other occasions when Henry's use of art and ceremony did not always produce the desired effect, notably perhaps when funds were not forthcoming for the Sicilian campaign. It must also be said that the image of cooperation that is depicted on the belt of Fernando de la Cerda, which was the first um, example we looked at, that's also, I think, problematic. The odd collection of arms could speak more of divisions within Henry's court than cohesion. Moreover, many of the men whose arms appear on the belt sided against Henry during the um, civil war that I have alluded to, and prior to that, when a party of reform swept to power in 1258. But my purpose has not been to argue that Henry III was always successful. He was not. By looking, though, at a belt, a building, and battle, um, I hope to have shown that Henry III communicated his power during his reign through art and ceremony. Furthermore, his efforts were deliberate and they were considered. And as such, I think they can be said to constitute a specific approach to royal political discourse during his 56-year reign. And if we do not acknowledge the centrality that art and ceremony um, played during um, Henry's political strategies during his reign, we are, I think, in risk of ending up with an incomplete jigsaw. And I think this point is particularly important because Henry's son and successor, Edward I, used art and used ceremony in a way that I think appears more considered than earlier Angevin rulers perhaps as though he had learned something from his father. Father and son were, of course, very different men and very different um, rulers. But if we think about Edward I's imperial construction at Carnarvon and his imposing black marble tomb, which took design cues from that, um, the tomb of the, of the legendary King Arthur, it suggests, I think, that Henry III's approach to politics and the use of art in politics was pursued after his death. And this is not surprising. As Parliament slowly evolved from an event into an institution during the late 13th and early 14th century, England's rulers, I think, inevitably sought new means to project a favourable view of royal authority to a great number of their subjects who now had more involvement in and direction over the government of the realm. Henry III was not always successful, but he did, I think, understand the importance of using art and ceremony to exalt and to exculpate royal authority. Consequently, the king's motivations and methods need to be recognised more fully if we are to progress beyond ready-made characterizations of Henry III as a God-fearing and ineffectual failure. And if nothing else, I hope this evening you'll now be able to identify your different Henry III's apart. <laughs> Thank you very much.